Um, I want to thank Doug for those very kind words, and I have met Doug so many times at all these meetings, um, and it's lovely that you guys invited me here. I want to thank you all. Um, and I think that in with respect to the annual Schwartz lecture, from hearing a little bit about Dr. Schwartz and his character, I think this is a very applicable topic today because the idea is that we should go away from using modalities where we're using ionizing radiation to seek out alternative imaging modalities. All right, let's see here, okay. Um, can, can we just dim the lights a little bit as well? Thank you. So I just wanted to mention that today, I'm going to be talking about contrast agents, ultrasound contrast agents. And uh, Lumison is the contrast agent, one of the ones that is available in the United States, and it's been FDA approved for the use uh, of evaluation of pediatric liver lesions and for contrast urosonography. But all the other applications I'm going to be talking about are really off-label use. Um, this is not possible for us to do what we do at our center without a whole team behind me, and so this this, these group of individuals are the people who make it all happen. They include ultrasound technologists, research technologists, and of course my mentor and um, current chairman of our department, Dr. Casa Dargay. And Seth Vatsky and Michael Accord are two of our interventional IR guys who um, use contrast as well, and I'll show you some examples and applications of that as well. So Really, during this session, we're going to talk about why, why should we be using contrast? You know, what is its role? What are the contrast agents? Talk a little bit about their composition and metabolism. Um, what do we know about their safety record? Um, and, you know, how are, are we administering? How are we actually doing these cases? And finally, I'm going to show you different applications and, and through a case-based uh, approach. Um, I just want to mention that if you are interested in doing and learning more about contrast, we actually have a contrast center, and we provide courses both for technologists, radiologists, uh, trainees of all sorts um, throughout the year. So if you're interested, you can go to our website. There are other places in Philadelphia, and the AIUM also provides courses where you can learn more. So why contrast-enhanced ultrasound? Well, number one, really, ultrasound, as you know, there's no radiation involved. Um, con the ultrasound contrast agents are not nephrotoxic. I'm going to talk to you a little bit how they're metabolized. You can do multiple injections. The, the exam itself can take only about 15 to 20 minutes to do. There's no sedation involved. You can do them portably at the bedside, in the ICU, even in the operating room. They really serve as a great problem-solving tool as in conjunction with much more conventional imaging. And there are, so, uh, there are a whole host of applications that can actually help us replace other more conventional studies such as CT to decrease radiation dose and even perhaps some going forward contrast enhanced ultrasound can replace MR in some situations not only will it reduce our need for sedation and anesthesia but perhaps also reduce our utilization of gadolinium which of course we know is not without a risk so ultrasound is very pediatric friendly uh, we know that it's easy for parents uh, to actually um, um, to mingle with their children and to interact with their children because we can actually scan them in different positions as I'm showing you here. Um, it's also very easy to schedule a contrast enhanced ultrasound in our daily practice as opposed to trying to finagle in an MRI study uh, or even a CT in very, very busy practices. So you can do them on the same day a patient comes in and is being seen in a clinic as a new patient, for example. There is improved temporal resolution. 
And you can do it at the bedside as they're doing here in an ICU patient, portably. It's ideal for patients who have renal insufficiency or renal failure. And it's also ideal for patients who have a contrast allergy, whether it be to gadolinium or iodinated contrast. There are several routes of administration for contrast. We can give it intravenously, usually to assess solid organs or any particular lesion. You can give it intravascular um, into the bladder. And you can do intracavitary routes as well, which means really um, directly injecting into an abscess or perhaps a cyst. There are numerous applications uh, for this. This was really outlined very well by our European colleagues in a recent publication in 2016. I'm gonna be talking a little bit about several of these applications and we're actually going to talk a little bit about its use in IBD, which is one of my favorite topics. Um, I won't be actually talking much about the MSK applications, but I can tell you at our center, we're doing a prospective study where we're actually looking at hip perfusion in patients with hip dysplasia. And as you may know, children with hip dysplasia do sometimes require placement of a spica cast, which is done in the operating room. So what we're actually doing now is we're looking at the femoral epiphyseal perfusion before and after spica cast placement in the OR. So perhaps those patients who were going to MRI after spica cast placement, maybe we don't need to do that. And perhaps we can just use contrast enhanced ultrasound to look at that hip perfusion. So that's one of the uh, roles and you'll be seeing more of that in the future. So let's actually talk about what makes up these ultrasound contrast agents. So the, currently there are three agents available in the United States. One is called Definity, it's made by Lanthius um, Pharmaceuticals. Um, the second is Optison, which is manufactured by GE. And finally, there's Lumison, which is manufactured by Bracco. And that's the one I'm gonna be showing you mostly today um, and that we're gonna be utilizing for most of the cases. It is the one that's FDA approved since 2016 for intravenous use for evaluation of liver lesions and for avoiding urosonography. Lumison is also the one that they use in Europe for all these years under the trade name of Sonoview. So these are second generation ultrasound contrast agents. So what are they? They are composed of microbubble, uh, microbubbles that are filled with a gas, an inert gas, with the outside protein or lipid shell. So the microbubbles are metabolized and the gas is eliminated through the lungs within about 10 minutes after injection. And the shell, which is comprised of a protein or lipid, is gonna be metabolized by the liver. There's really no renal excretion of these contrast agents, so it's not nephrotoxic, and therefore very an ideal agent to be using in patients with renal insufficiency. Of course, there are some pitfalls for the fact that it's not renally excreted, and we're gonna talk about that as far as its role in trauma. They are blood pool agents. They circulate in the vascular system, and they remain intravascular. And they are, we're able to see them on ultrasound because they produce very strong acoustic reflections with ultrasound waves. So I'm gonna show you an example here of the different phases we can see in real-time imaging after contrast is given. This is the liver here, and there's actually a focal lesion I'm showing you. And this is during the early arterial phase, slightly more delayed portal venous phase, and more delayed venous phase. And you can see how the contrast enters, stays in the microvasculature of the liver, and washes out over time. So the two contrast agents we're going to be uh, primarily used are Lumison and Optison. The differences between these two are Lumison is comprised of a sulfur hexafluoride gas. 
and it has a phospholipid shell, whereas Optison has a albumin shell around a perflutin uh, gas molecule. Now, just to give you a perspective of how small these microbubbles are, um, Lumison is 1.3 to 2.5 microns as opposed to the red blood cell, which is about 6 to 8 microns. Just to give you a perspective on what these microbubble agents and how small they are. So a lot of people will be asking, well, are they safe to use? You know, we, we, we have read a lot of, and there's a lot out there about use of iodinated contrast agents and gadolinium. And, but what about the safety profile for contrast um, uh, agents? And we know that, in fact, based on the current literature and people's experiences, mostly out of Europe and now in the United States, it has an excellent safety record for all methods of administration and applications. A lot of the data is in adults, but there is some limited uh, data in children. And what we know is there are adverse reactions to the contrast ultrasound agents. Um, but when we look at them with respect to those adverse reactions we see with CT contrast or MR contrast, it's much more, uh, it's much significantly less. It's less than 1%. And what about in children? So there have been some very nice uh, studies that have been done looking at off-label use of contrast for various applications over the last um, uh, more than 10 years. Um, and a recent meta-analysis looked at 502 patients who underwent contrast ultrasound examinations. And that's over 700 exams in total, out of which they found only 10 patients had adverse reactions. One was severe, which was near anaphylaxis, and nine were minor. Now, since then, additional studies have come out. And with the additional reports in the literature, we now have seen up to 1,300 or plus studies that have been done in children, and of which only there have been two reported adverse events, and there have been 11 minor events. And these minor events, these are children who came back for repeat contrast enhanced ultrasound studies, and on those repeat examinations, they did not have any additional reactions. Now, all of this data is really based on the fact that people actually report these adverse reactions. I was at a recent meeting um, uh, in month of March where we asked by a show of hands in a group, in a workshop we were doing contrast enhanced ultrasound, how many people were doing it. And in fact, two-thirds of the group actually raised their hand and said that. But in that group, we actually found out there was somebody who had a 16-year-old who had an adverse near-anaphylactic reaction. But unless those people actually reported they will not be addressed in the literature and we won't be able to know. So what we know so far out of this many children is that there have been two adverse events. And both of these children did very well with resuscitation using uh, epinephrine and fluid resuscitation. What are some of these minor reactions you might see? I would say that the top three are the ones that we have seen and heard patients um, mention. Although in my own personal interactions, I've not had any reactions at all for many of the children. The nice thing is they're not sedated. You can talk to them. Uh, they're usually watching TV when you're doing this. Um, everybody's you know, very relaxed. Um, but what people have described is slight taste alteration, some mild tinnitus. Um, I have not seen anyone who's actually developed any ventilation or respiratory issues or any rashes, although they have been described. So what about the safety record of avoiding urosonography? Because that's really the second biggest reason why we use this. So um, across the board worldwide, avoiding urosonography is the most common indication for using contrast enhanced ultrasound followed by focal, assessment of focal liver lesions. 
But let's go back uh, earlier in um, the radiology literature from 1992 when we first had our report about looking at post-procedural symptoms in kids undergoing conventional VCUGs and radionuclide scintigraphy, voiding um, scintigraphy. And when we look at that actual paper that came out in radiology in 1992, they found that about 80% of, I'm sorry, 35% of patients, 80 out of the total 228 children who underwent these procedures actually described having some symptoms after the procedure. And most of the symptoms were, if in fact, very minor and they were related to the actual catheterization. All right. So this is based on conventional voiding avoiding um, studies that we know of. And again, to emphasize, they were often symptoms related to catheterization. So let's now turn towards using contrast-enhanced ultrasound in the bladder and doing voiding urosonography. What do we know about the symptoms and, and safety record there? Well, what we know is that there have been a total of more than 7,000 cases that have been done, combination of mostly European literature and some literature and some experiences here in the United States. And of those, we have only adverse events in about 0.8%. And when we look at the types of reactions we've had, and these are all patients that were assessed 24 hours after they've had the voiding urosonography, most of them commonly, they've described some dysuria, some abdominal discomfort, and most of these are all related to catheterization, and if not really related to the contrast agent itself. So again, very minor symptoms. But this again mirrors what we know can happen after a standard VCUG or radionuclide study. Now, currently, there is a there was a prospective study that was published um, out of Europe, and the primary objective of this study was uh, to evaluate the safety record avoiding urosonography. And they did this in over more than one thousand patients. And here they found there was no serious adverse events. Uh, there were minor events, again, related primarily to catheterization, in about only three point seven percent of the patients. Again, emphasizing there's a very high safety profile. So now let's move on how we actually do this. Um, we won't be able to go into all the details during this one um, short lecture, but I want to highlight some important points that we have discovered from our own experiences. So the nice thing about being in an academic center is that we make all the mistakes possible and go through all the bumps in the road to try to optimize these things so that when you guys are doing it 10 years from now or five years from now, hopefully it's gonna run much more smoother for you because we've already um, smoothed out all the bumps in the road. So one of the things we uh, discovered very early on was that uh, the method and how you inject this contrast agents really impacts imaging. So what I mean by that is all these contrast agents are actually have to be reconstituted. They're in a um, powder form. Some of them have to be refrigerated. And once they're reconstituted, you're going to inject them into the IV line. We usually like to use a peripheral line, although you can use central line catheters, especially in our oncology patients. You don't have to try to put a second line in them. But one of the things we found was the contrast really needs to be injected into the 180-degree port of the three-way stopcock, okay? You can't be injecting it through the 90-degree port. And the main reason for that is these are microbubble agents are extremely sensitive to um, angles at which you put them through. And if you inject at a certain angle, they can actually burst the microbubbles, and you won't actually see any contrast when you're injecting. So 
Let's look at an example of that here. This is where the contrast was injected at a 90 degree angle, and this is supposed to be the kidney, and you don't actually see any contrast here. Now I'm gonna show you what it should look like uh, when you inject it through the 180 degree port, and you can see the kidney here, and you can see very nice enhancement of the kidney. So this was something that we, discovered pretty, pretty soon early on in using phantom studies and using it actually in patients as well. So you want to inject it through the 180 degree port using a three-way stopcock. So we prefer the using three-way stopcock peripheral ID, but you can use central line catheters. And we also recently discovered that the type of connectors that you use, there are a lot of places now use these neutral connectors to the central line catheters to help uh, in prevent uh, infections. Uh, those neutral connectors can also be a problem because they are very narrow when you actually look into the connector, and they can also burst some of the microbubble agents. So. As far as the injection, those are a couple of points I wanted to make, but what actually happens as far as when we're scanning? Who is the personnel? Who needs to be in the room? How do we actually do it? So you need one person to actually do the ultrasound. You need one person to actually inject the contrast. And so we have a primary sonographer in the room. We often have a radiologist in the room. Sometimes now we actually have some of our fellows who are very um, um, uh, adept at doing these now. Um, and the ultrasound contrast can be injected either by a nurse from the floor, a sonographer, or even the radiologist. So we have actually trained all of our sonographers to do the contrast injections as well. So you want to do initial grayscale and color Doppler imaging. You need to do some kind of baseline ultrasound imaging to figure out what exactly the clinical question is you're going to answer. Can we actually see the liver lesion on a grayscale image? That's really important because if you don't know where you're supposed to be looking, it's going to be very challenging with the contrast. Um, we have on all the vendors, all the ultrasound machines, uh, whether it's GE or Philips or Siemens, they all have dedicated contrast enhanced uh, packages, specific software, and that's what you could use. Uh, so they're commercially available. And what we will be doing is we look at the contrast and the grayscale window next to each other. And I'll show you some examples of that so that you can actually see the lesion, you can optimize your parameters on the grayscale images. And so what I mean by that is this, for example, typically you're doing the injection, here's the contrast window, here's the grayscale window, so you actually see and you're hovering over the area and focusing on the area, the organ or lesion of interest. Typically we can do up to anywhere between two to four contrast injections. So if you have three liver lesions, you can evaluate each of them. Or if you feel they're all the same and they're all enhancing pretty similarly, you can focus on one of them. Um, and of course, the dosage and the transducer and all of these things are going to affect how you actually scan. Um, the body habitus of the patient is also going to determine um, the dosage, the depth of the lesion. If you have a, uh, a liver lesion in segment four of the liver, it's going to be a little bit more challenging to get that depth and to be able to image the lesion. We usually scan anywhere between two to three minutes. Um, one of the questions I know a lot of people ask is, there's a lot of data here. You're capturing a lot of clips. How does your PACS handle that? Well, um, we now do one minute clips, and so we send one minute clips over on the PACS so as not to crash the system. We found that sending a lot of that data over was taking almost like several hours for y'all to come over, but doing one minute clips over a period of three to five minutes was much more feasible, and our, our PACS people were much more happy with that.
So I'm just showing you a nine-month-old, uh, nine a dresser fell over her abdomen. We do actually do contrast enhanced ultrasound for trauma, blunt abdominal trauma, and this was an actual normal study. I'm just showing you of the kidney. So let's move on now that you understand a little bit of background about contrast to actually looking at some of the cases. So uh, let's start here with a liver lesion. So I'm going to do some of the GI applications and then we'll move to GU. This is a one-month-old boy who had some vomiting and they thought they palpated in large liver and he came in for a standard uh, ultrasound of the abdomen. And uh, we found here this hypoechoic mass with some calcifications in the liver. And it's quite vascular um, when you put the linear probe in color. And I think it was thought based on that, this was a hemangioma. We went on to do this contrast enhanced ultrasound and what I'm showing you is there's immediate peripheral to central enhancement. And the central areas here that are necrotic or calcified are not enhancing. So when we look at the still images, this is before contrast and early arterial enhancement, some of the vessels centrally are enhancing. Then you see progressive peripheral to central enhancement. And finally, you see most of the lesion except for the central portions not, um, are not enhancing. And this really confirmed, and this is the classic enhancement pattern you would see on a conventional CT or MR for a infantile hemangioma. And that's what this is. So um, it's in the very easy to see at the bedside the enhancement pattern in real time. So this was a hemangioma. You don't need to biopsy this. This is pretty classic. It's a benign lesion, incidentally found, and probably has nothing to do with the patient's symptoms. Um, I want to point out that we recently published in October of this year in radiographics this uh, uh, atlas for everybody that we created to make life a lot easier. If you do start using contrast um, in your group, look at focal liver lesions, we've kind of highlighted a, a little uh, chart here so you can see how lesions enhance in the arterial portal venous and late phases on contrast enhanced ultrasound as, to use as a guide. So what do we know a little bit about focal liver lesions? Um, how well, how, how are we doing? Is there any cost benefit? Uh, has there been any cost analysis done? Well, as you know, cost analysis studies are very tricky because cost is really, uh, it's, a, it's a different perspective based on region, based on institution. This study that is the um, one that came out recently is actually out of Europe. So some of what they described as far as their cost savings could be very different from what we have here in the United States. But what I want to point out is they did a retrospective study, looked at seven years worth of their contrast enhanced ultrasound cases for focal liver lesions, which as you can see from this graph increased steadily over time. And they did about 147 focal liver lesions. And what they found as far as the cost savings was that in 50% uh, of the patients, the contrast enhanced ultrasound was diagnostic. They did not need to do additional imaging, CT, or MRI. So cost savings could be reflected in many ways, not just a monetary value, but how about from a safety perspective? How about a long-term perspective? Did you need to do additional studies? And that's kind of what they showed here, that it was equally diagnostic. These About half the patients did not need additional imaging. So let's move on to our next case, and I'm going to show you. This is a patient who is a seven-year-old girl who was playing laser tag and had fallen down. And she presents to our um, ER three days after the fall. And what you can see on this um, uh, ultrasound is it looks like there's some kind of uh, ill-defined hypoechoic uh, area here, just subcapsular. And there's kind of another little area that looks a little hypoechoic, and it's not really clearly defined on the grayscale imaging. 
So let's uh, look at what happened after we gave contrast enhanced ultra, uh, contrast. And here the liver is perfusing, but now I'm going to show you that there is a grade three stellate um, laceration in the liver, which you really can't see on the grayscale imaging, but you can see much better on the contrast imaging. So this was a grade three hepatic lesion, uh, hepatic uh, laceration. We did not actually go on to CT. Now, I want to point out that I'm not making the point that contrast enhanced ultrasound is going to replace CT for trauma. That is not the purpose of me showing you this case. But it does have a role, and it probably the best role is in those children have very low energy blunt abdominal trauma who are hemodynamically stable. And in those patients, we have found contrast enhanced ultrasound to be very helpful. So, and I will uh, actually show you a little bit of the literature what we currently have on that. Here's a 16-year-old boy who was kneed in the abdomen during a baseball game. And here you see that he's got a significant um, uh, injury to the mid and lower poles of his kidney on the CT, the large perinephric hematoma, and had basically what looked like a shattered kidney. Uh, two days later, he was in-house and his hemoglobin dropped and there was concern that he was having active bleeding. So we did this ultrasound and what we see there and here is a large um, perinephric fluid collection. Some of this could be residual um, evolving blood products from the original injury, certainly. But there was concern that he may be having bleeding and it's very tough to see if there's some blood products here kind of superiorly along the uh, mid to upper pole of the kidney. And uh, with Doppler, you can see here there was some concern, maybe something's going on down here. So because they were worried about active bleeding, we gave contrast and I want to, the, the circle is where you're supposed to be focusing. So there's contrast enhancing the lower pole of the kidney and I want to point out you're going to see some areas of contrast pooling around the kidney in the perinephric space and real-time imaging right in here, right there. And this was a example of active bleeding. And it's really quite impressive when you see this in real-time imaging. There's no way you can get that kind of imaging with CT because there's always a lag. But you're actually there at the bedside with your probe on the patient and you can actually see this. And if you needed to prove this to the surgeon and you showed this, you can inject again and show it in real time to the surgeon and say, hey, listen, there's active bleeding. Well, actually, they conservatively managed this patient, and he did very well. And on follow-up imaging, um, there was a resolution, and um, the kidney actually um, regained its um, uh, function, and uh, all the blood products resolved, and he's doing very well. So my points are that for stable blunt abdominal trauma, there is a role for contrast-enhanced ultrasound. And perhaps we could go away from doing all these pan scans in some of these patients that don't need it. Um, there are patients who do need it, and probably contrast is not good for multi-polytrauma, uh, multi-organs uh, or system trauma where their patient is in shock. Those are not the patients who would want to use contrast. Those are patients who really need CT or emergent OR. We still use the same grading system uh, based on the American Association of Surgery for Trauma Scoring. And I want to point out because contrast, ultrasound contrast is not excreted through the collecting system, you can't really use it to evaluate for renal collecting system injuries. So that's one of the major pitfalls. But what do we know about uh, evidence-based from uh, what's in the literature? So there are numerous articles that have come out looking at the use of contrast-enhanced ultrasound for blunt abdominal trauma in children over time and they've compared their experience with CT in all of these patients. Uh, that's the point that I would like to make. They have retrospectively or prospectively 
compared contrast-enhanced ultrasound with CAT scan. And in the first study that came out from Europe, 14 injuries in 12 children, uh, contrast-enhanced ultrasound missed one adrenal lesion, but they were able to identify the splenic lesion in that patient. Uh, another study that came out in 2015, 67 injuries in 73 children, contrast-enhanced ultrasound detected all the injuries and was equally diagnostic to CT. And finally, there was a, a, a paper that came out in Journal of Pediatric Surgery where they looked at 21 injuries in 18 patients, and contrast-enhanced ultrasound did miss a grade three liver lack and a renal injury, um, uh, but in the, and they missed one splenic uh, uh, laceration, but they found the renal laceration in that patient. So it's not without, uh, it's not 100% sensitive, certainly. CT is far more sensitive than con uh, contrast-enhanced ultrasound, but I think that there is a role. And so, in some of the studies, they've shown that contrast-enhanced ultrasound can be equal and diagnostic to CT. It is certainly much more sensitive than the grayscale standard baseline conventional ultrasound we have done sometimes as fast scans, which are really don't, are very limited in evaluation of solid organs, but can help you look for acute blood and uh, fluid in the patients. Um, so again, there is probably a role. I think there's still more work to be done in the future to really uh, discern which patients will really need this. So let's move on and I want to show you another case here and how we use contrast-enhanced ultrasound. This is a six-month-old girl who had precocious puberty, had an MR of the abdomen and pelvis. And on the top image of the uh, abdomen, at the dome of the liver, there was this T2 bright lesion and it was almost uh, missed actually. And on post-contrast imaging, which I'm not showing you, there was so much breathing. And when you look at these dome of the liver lesions, it can be very challenging on MR, especially in small children. So we went ahead and said, hey, let's uh, try to, uh, uh, you know, better discern this lesion on ultrasound. You can see it very clearly on ultrasound here, because it's a higher resolution imaging than this MR. And here's the contrast-enhanced uh, portion. You can see there's early arterial enhancement of this lesion. It's enhancing a little bit more brighter than the adjacent liver. But I, what I want to point out to you is it's going to start, um, you're, going to see, you're going to see it starting to wash out very quickly, and it's already washing out here. Um, so if we look at the still images, this is early arterial enhancement and early washout. When we see uh, any patterns like this, this is very concerning. This is usually a sign that you're dealing with a malignant lesion. And so it was biopsied and this patient actually had hepatoblastoma, which is the most common primary malignant uh, liver tumor in children. Um, sometimes precocious puberty, to keep, uh, to keep in the back of your mind, can be a presentation of hepatoblastoma in children. So um, I just want to point out is that we know patterns of benign lesions and malignant lesions. And this patient did not go on to have any further MR or any sedation. This study was actually done at the bedside in the NICU, and the patient went on to have a biopsy and then um, had treatment. Um, how else can we use uh, contrast-enhanced ultrasound? This is a 15-year-old girl who has osteosarcoma and disseminated candida infection. You can see on the CAT scan there are multiple hypodense lesions throughout the spleen and liver, which is where candida likes to uh, disseminate to. And I, what I want to point out is on grayscale imaging of ultrasound, and often we do do CTs, and then we try to follow them with uh, conventional ultrasound in these kids. But I'm just showing you that on standard ultrasound, it's very difficult to see those lesions. But when you give contrast, you 
you can see the lesions much more clearly. And this is actually very helpful because on follow-up, we again did contrast because on the grayscale images were very limited and you can see that the patient was doing very well and it was resolving. So again, contrast here helped show you more conspicuity of the lesions. We avoided doing a follow-up CT and this was actually a bedside exam because the patient was too ill um, to come down. How can we use it as far as interventional procedures go? So um, we can identify liver lesions or solid organ lesions, but from procedural guidance, contrast can also help us avoid vascularity, target viable tissue to avoid the necrotic tissue to increase our biopsy yield and increase lesion conspicuity. So here's an example of a one-year-old child who had a liver mass. You can see large vessels entering this lesion on the early arterial phase of the contrast. And then our IR doctors were able to actually get viable tissue to avoid these large vessels with using contrast in the IR suite to do the ultrasound guidance for this bi uh, biopsy. So again, this turned out to be an FNH in this patient, um, but uh, contrast helped us avoid large vessels on biopsy. Let's move on to another application, intravesical use. Voiding urosonography worldwide is probably the most common use for ultrasound contrast agents followed by liver lesions. Um, and I'm mentioning some of these points because you may uh, need to answer those CME questions. So, all right, so let's be honest. Um, um, so the way we do this is really similar to VCUG. If any of you have seen how VCUGs are done, um, unfortunately, uh, we try to make them more comfortable, but I don't think a lot has changed in the VCUG world. We use the ultrasound and ultrasound contrast agents as opposed to fluoroscopy. Um, and uh, we will do it very similar to how we do a BCG. We have to do a bladder catheterization. Cannot avoid that. Under sterile technique, you want that bladder to be empty. And I'm showing you here that we use a gravity technique. Uh, we infuse the contrast injected into the bag, uh, 250 uh, ml saline bag, and we use gravity and we um, instill it in a retrograde fashion like you would do contrast in the fluoroscopy suite and we use some dedicated ultrasound settings. So just wanna show you a little bit about ultrasound setup. We drop the contrast into the syringe. We instill actually about 50 to 60 cc's of saline into the bladder because if the bladder is empty and decompressed, it can be hard to see. You want to kind of get your landmarks. So that's the reason why we put a little bit of normal saline in there to begin with. Then we instill, we inject the contrast into the bag, hang it, and then we connect it, as you can see here, by gravity, and we infuse it in a retrograde fashion. The point is to monitor the bladder filling. You want to get optimal bladder filling, but you want to make sure that the bladder is diffusely homogeneous in distribution. You need to sometimes shake the um, contrast bag because the contrast is actually a milky white viscous, structure, uh, viscous cons consistency. So you need to constantly be shaking either the syringe or the um, um, bag when you're doing a voiding study. Um, you want to really get a homogeneous distribution because you don't want too much acoustic shadowing and you want to be able to visualize the base of the bladder and the retrovesical space. I'm actually pointing out to you here a patient who's actually having reflux into the ureter here and you can see it in longitudinal plane, the reflux going into the uh, ureter here. So. On uh, voiding studies, vesicourethral reflux is graded very similar to VCUG. We have grades one through five, and it's based on the how far it goes into the collecting system and how dilated the collecting system is. So grade one, you see here in the ureter, as I just showed you, um, 
Grade two, again, would be in the collecting system. There's no pelvic dilatation. Um, I'm showing you higher grades, four and five here, a very, uh, a very nice example of that here with the calyces are blunted. And you can see the contrast very easily into the um, kidneys. So you're not only imaging the bladder as it fills, but then you're gonna go up and image the kidneys intermittently, just like you would in, in a VCUG. And the contrast is so bright that you should be able to see it in the collecting system. So you won't really miss that um, reflux, but you have to be looking for it. And here's a grade five where there's really blown out collecting system, and you can sometimes even see the very tortuous ureter. Um, so one of the questions that comes up by our, uh, originally when we started proposing this by our, to our urologists is, hey, we're used to having an anatomic study. We can see all the anatomy of the urethra. Would we be missing that by doing contrast studies? And the answer is no. You can still evaluate the urethra, uh, uh, which is more important in a, a male, uh, either through a transperineal approach or a suprapubic approach. And I'm actually showing you here, these are two kids they are avoiding, and you can see the entire urethra. Um, so, the answer is we don't do this for all BCUGs. Uh, we have been started out a very slow way and introduced it to our urologists by trying to do it in children who would uh, already had a initial BCUG look at the anatomy and we follow them using voiding urosonography to avoid the radiation, for example. And sometimes we do it as troubleshooting or problem solving. Um, here's an example of problem solving. Um, this is a 17-year-old boy who had painful urination. We did a retrograde urethrogram in the fluoroscopy suite, and we see here a short segment of stricture here. Um, and uh, what the urologist really wanted us to do was we did an intraoperative um, avoiding uh, a retrograde study of the urethra prior to urethroplasty. So this is how we can use it now. And you can actually see here the bulbar stricture in real time imaging in the OR. And we are using this now also to evaluate um, uh, uterus abnormalities and other GU pathology as well. Um, here's an example of how it can be used in an interventional suite. Um, this is uh, for renal cyst sclerosis, a 13-year-old girl who had left flank pain and upper pole renal cyst, which is pretty complex and large looking. And uh, what you see here is they're doing, using a, not only mixing the contrast with the sclerosing agent, but you can actually see it in real time. You can see the cyst shrink and you can give contrast to see if there's any residual cyst remaining, and perhaps if you need to do more than one injection, one treatment, it's gonna be very useful. Finally, I want to end with one of my favorite topics, um, uh, IBD, and as I understand it, um, there is a large IBD center here, and I just wanted to share with you some of my experience of where I think contrast is going to play a role. Um, so we do a lot of bowel sonography at our center, um, and we use bowel ultrasound for evaluation of Crohn's patients, um, both to follow up a baseline MR enterography, or perhaps uh, to uh, do it as a baseline in a very young child who can't have an MR enterography. I'm just showing you an example of our grayscale image of a normal terminal ileum and a diseased terminal ileum marked bowel wall thickening and hyperema in a Crohn's patient. So you actually can see a lot of the pathology you see on um, uh, MR or CT. Um, where we are finding the role for contrast enhanced ultrasound for IBD, and I think this is going to be uh, more um, 
developed in the future is in the very early onset IBD. We have a large very early onset IBD center in our place. These are children less than seven years of age. We're seeing children as young as maybe nine or ten months of age who are being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, unfortunately. But these are kids who you cannot just say, I'm going to do an MR enterography uh, because they require anesthesia because you've got to give them large volumes of oral contrast. So I think that uh, this is going to be an excellent role. And here's a four-year-old who came, and you actually see thickening of the sigmoid colon, and it's hyperemic here. You can use the bladder as a very nice acoustic window. And here's the terminal ileum, post-contrast. I'm you know, grayscale, you can't see it as well, but I'm post-contrast, you can see how thickened the wall is, and it is um, enhancing, indicating there's some active inflammation. So I just want to point out the very early onset IBD patients are a very unique phenotype and genotype. And they have much more severe disease than perhaps the older child, the adolescents we would typically see. So this is a very unique subset of patients, and we're trying to really work out the genetics and trying to figure out how best to treat these patients. Well, where does contrast-enhanced ultrasound fall? Well, not only can we try to image these segments of disease, but we can follow them over time as well. This is that four-year-old, and I'm showing you contrast enhancement of the rectum, and a sign of active inflammation of the bowel would be early enhancement and rapid washout, which is what you're seeing here. And if I show you some still images, early enhancement and, um, and washout within about 50 seconds, 30 to 50 seconds. Um, here's an, uh, that same uh, four-year-old who had transverse colon inflammation I'm showing you here on contrast. And again, there was early wash-in and early wash-out, as you can see here. Within 20 seconds, it started washing out. Now, what can we do with this information? So there's been quite a bit of uh, literature that has come out of our colleagues both in Canada, um, Stephanie Wilson's group in Calgary, and also our European colleagues. You can actually put range of interest over the bowel wall, calculate time intensity curves, as I'm showing you here on this patient. And what does this help us do? You can actually develop, um, oops, I'm gonna go back for a minute. To time intensity curves here to show in wash in and wash out. And the area under the curve can actually be calculated and you can uh, determine severity of disease based on the area under the curve. So there have been some excellent um, literature recently uh, by some groups where they actually use the time intensity curves and area under the curve to determine who is responding to treatment and who is not. And that is going to really be a big impact for our gastroenterologists to determine how to treat them, a single uh, agent or dual agent therapy, or maybe the therapy is not even working. Do they need to go to surgery? So not only can we to look at non-responders, we can also determine um, is a stricture inflammatory or fibrotic, which has always been a big question amongst our gastroenterologists and surgeons. Can we tell? For so far, with our conventional imaging on CT enterography and MR enterography, it's very difficult to differentiate fibrosis from inflammatory strictures because both inflammation and fibrosis exist in the same segments. We did our own study where we looked at the pathological spe specimens and kids who had ileocecectomies. And when I sat down with our pathologist, he said they all had severe inflammation and all had severe fibrosis. So we need to find better biomarkers to determine who's going to go to surgery. And I think contrast is going to be one of those areas. You can also identify the severity of disease and correlated with some of our pediatric Crohn's disease activity scores that we have out there. And also it's been shown to help us determine inflammatory masses or are we dealing with an abscess? So contrast can be useful in those situations as well. 
So finally, in summary, I think what I'd like you to take away is contrast enhanced ultrasound is portable, it's safe, and it really is easy to perform. It avoids radiation and sedation. It perhaps can be an alternative to our uh, CT and MR and avoiding some of the MR contrast uh, in the future. And we showed you some cases where there's improved temporal resolution and lesion conspicuity using ultrasound. And finally, I hope I've shown you a wide variety of uh, cases, both GI and GU, to show you how uh, you can apply contrast enhanced ultrasound. Thank you for your attention.